This is a reading from Psalms 23, a Psalm of David, which you can find on page 435 in the Pew Bibles. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Reuben. Good morning. As we begin to hear the word today together, let us begin in prayer. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for our presence, for your presence with us today, and for our presence here with you. Would your spirit unstop our ears and open our eyes to the invitation you give us today for what it looks like to walk with and follow Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Amen. So, the way of satisfaction. This sermon today continues in our sermon series for Lent, Lead Us Not Into Consumption. And today we're moving away from the Gospel of Matthew just for a week to hear this psalm, Psalm 23 the way of satisfaction. But I want to talk about a different song first. In 1965, the Rolling Stones recorded the song Satisfaction or I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I would just like to say that grammatically it should be I can't get any satisfaction. (laughs) But when do rock musicians consult with English majors? Anyway, if you've ever looked at or listened to these words, lyrics carefully, you'll hear that this song is about consumerism and materialism and, of course, women. I can't get no satisfaction, Mick Jagger sings, as he tells about hearing and seeing advertisements, and he's not satisfied with what he already has. And then he sings about how he's losing with the ladies, that's my paraphrase, Because even as he travels around doing concerts, the girl says, better come back next week. And he is not satisfied. This is a pretty peppy song with a really great guitar riff about a very dark problem, dissatisfaction. The dissatisfaction one has with what one has, what one wants, relationships, and probably life in general, I can't get no satisfaction. And I know it's old, but this song has stuck around in our cultural milieu. It's been covered at least 16 times, and it's still the Rolling Stones' most played song ever. And it doesn't take much to realize that we, too, live in a culture that is fueled by dissatisfaction. Mick Jagger is right, I think. Because we try, and we try, and we try, and we try, and we still can't get no satisfaction. Our dissatisfaction is fueled by a lot of things, a few of which I would like to mention here. HGTV. Has this fueled any of your dissatisfaction with your home? Instagram. Just 
plain images of beautiful men and women who look so happy and so young and so smooth, and the older you get, the smoother they look. Inspirational speakers who tell us that we can be or do whatever we want to be if we just have enough confidence. But this is not true, my friends. Sometimes your body is the wrong dimension. Sometimes you're not born into the right family. Sometimes there is no one to teach you. Sometimes you make mistakes and have regrets, and you can't get no satisfaction. You're dissatisfied. But our psalm today, Psalm 23, this is a song of satisfaction, and it is thousands of years old. The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything I need. This is a story that counters dissatisfaction. This is the song that's really rebellious, rebelling against the rampant consumerism of our age. This is our story as followers of Jesus and and a life of relationship to Jesus. This is our story of satisfaction. I think that Psalm 23 might be one of our, the church's, most played song ever most played psalm ever. I think it might be on many of our top 10 lists, so I'm going to do a very unscientific, informal poll. How many of you, if you made a list of top favorite passages, would put Psalm 23 on the list? I'm just curious, okay? It's a lot. Great. How many of you have this or part of this memorized? If you don't, don't feel bad. You can do it next week, but right? (laughs) So, A lot of us know this, and even if you're like, well, it's not my favorite, and I don't really know very much about the Bible, and I don't have it memorized, but we've heard it, because this is used all the time in references, in other songs and films, it's quoted in Titanic, right? It is set to music, it is, (laughs) it is set to music a ton. We don't usually sing from the hymnal that much in this service, but I went through and counted 14 times in our hymnal. And even today in the first service, our choir director, John Rakes, conducted the choir and singing an arrangement of Psalm 23 that he has written. And so Psalm 23 is really quite a contrast to Satisfaction, the song by the Rolling Stones, because this starts out right away, declaring satisfaction. It begins, Yahweh is my shepherd. Then it's translated a ton of different ways in the second part. So these first few verses, this first part, it's just four words in Hebrew. Yahweh is my shepherd, that's the first part. And then the second two words, I shall not want. If you have your Bible open to Psalm 23, I'm curious to hear what your translation says. I shall not want. What, what other things do your Bibles say? Nothing shall I lack. Others? I shall not be in want. I have everything I need, right? It's translated a lot of ways. Basically, I might translate it at this point, the Lord is my shepherd, I am satisfied. And then the rest of this poem psalm supports this thesis, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Why? Well, first we can remember this psalm is written in first person sheep. It's the sheep talking. The sheep is talking about what the shepherd does. So the first section, he makes me lie down in green pastures. So a good place to rest, soft, right, not prickly grass, good food to eat. 
It's not a muddy construction site. It's not a desert. It's not a dried up field. Green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Water and the chaos of the ocean was considered an enemy of humanity at this point, but this is still waters. It's not tumultuous. That would scare the sheep, right? Still waters that they can go up and drink from without getting their wool wet. He leads me in right paths. This doesn't mean just a good hiking trail that has good footing and is wide enough. No, it actually means a righteous path. The shepherd leads the sheep in the path that is right, in the path that is good. And then the part in the music that always is minor, right? Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, sheep are easily spooked by high contrast between light and dark, and they can't see well in shadowy areas. So the shepherd has to corral them and keep them together with rod and staff. And often we hear this and we think, oh, that's so sweet. But really, this is much more like, this is a metaphor some parents or people who have cared for young children will remember and understand. When the kid gets too close to the road and a car is coming and you run out and pick up the kid and put them down and say, don't do that. Right? It keeps them safe. It is not gentle, but it is loving your rod and your staff, your club and your cane, they comfort me. That's what it means in Hebrew, okay? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is still first-person sheep, but it's not a picnic table. The shepherd goes in front of the sheep and pulls out the poisonous herbs, pulls out the thorns that are going to injure them, you prepare the table, you prepare the meal, and then, oh, there's a scorpion. There's a snake, right, in the presence of my dead enemies. That's what the shepherd does. He goes ahead, prepares a table of food to eat in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. So without understanding the context of first century shepherding practices, this can kind of sound weird, but the shepherd's a vet here. Sometimes sheep get torn. Their skin gets torn from some thorns the shepherd might have missed or when they ran off the path. And so the oil is healing oil. And the shepherd takes oil and, and looks between the wool. I, I, I'm not a sheep herder. And finds the wound and pours the oil on it. And the oil heals the sheep's skin. The shepherd is a vet. And then my cup overflows, still sheep, because shepherds would give sheep wine if they were feeling tired or fatigued or weren't doing well at the end of the day to nourish them. And it's not just my cup overflows, it actually means my cup, your, my cup is intoxicating. Wine is seen as a blessing of healing and celebration. And the shepherd is caring for the sheep by giving the sheep wine. And then the end, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall go back to Yahweh's house for long days. Now, if you have the King James of this memorized, which is kind of what might be in our, in our minds, it says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But this is really not about eternal life here. This is about hope for a long life with God now. The length of days. Even in the last days of life, 
even when literal walking might be impossible. This sheep wants to be in the presence of God. This is about satisfaction the poet has, the sheep has in the presence of Yahweh. This sheep has satisfaction. The Lord is my shepherd. I am satisfied. And this is good news. If we did 10-minute homilies, I would be done now. but I'm not. As I meditated on this psalm this week, this is what I started wondering, though. Psalm 23 is fantastic news. I love it. It is a favorite song of many of us. But what do we do when someone says, that sounds great for you. It sounds good that Yahweh is your shepherd and you feel this care and comfort for God, but I don't. I don't. That's good for you. I don't. I wish it did. What do we do then? That's a problem in the psalm, I think. And these questions can really only be answered, not by this psalm, but when we take Psalm 23 and we put it back in the playlist it was originally played between Psalm 22 and 24 because they are in numerical order. And when we start listening to this song in context... And so that's what we're going to do now. When we study and read the Bible, context is everything. One of my favorite quotes about this is, a text without a context is just a pretext for anything you want it to mean. So we're going to put it back in its literary context. The placement in the book of the Psalms where everything is in a particular order for a theological reason. So let's go back one. Let's listen to the song before Song 23. Psalm 22. So keep your Bibles open if if you have them or open them up. If you don't, please. So this is a song also by David. Convenient. The same singer, the same writer. And it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer by night, but you Find no rest. This is a very different song, isn't it? God, I can't get no satisfaction because you're not here. God, I call out for you and you don't show up. God, where are you? Where are you? I am not satisfied because I'm lonely and you're gone. That's what the psalmist is saying. This is a different tune, isn't it, from Psalm 23? Psalm 22 is considered an individual psalm of lament. The main question is, God, where are you? Maybe you recognize these words. Maybe you recognize these words as the words Jesus prayed on the cross in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And Jesus is quoting his favorite song. Maybe not his favorite, but a favorite, a one that was well-known. The lament of David God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's asking God to simply show up. He's not asking God to rescue him. He's not asking God to heal him. He's saying, God, show up. Let me know you're here. And this song continues in what is called by one scholar the ultimate lament. If you write in your Bible, that would be a good thing to write next to Psalm 22. The ultimate lament. And in verses 15 through 16, we can read about his emotional and physical pain where he says, 14 and 15, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. 
My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a broken piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you're sweeping me up like the dust of death. And the psalmist cries for God to come back. Come back, God. Come back. Come back. Help me, God. What's fascinating about Psalm 22 is that even though it starts out miserable and alone, the psalmist begins praising God even before God has done something. In verse, 20, in verse 2, he begins remembering the character of God. Yet you, God, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, and you they trusted, and they were not put to shame. And it's like the psalmist is saying, even though I'm not satisfied, now God, I know that one day I will be because of who you are. You've satisfied in the past, and you'll you'll satisfy in the future. And this is satisfaction in the midst of dissatisfaction. It's satisfaction in the face of severe physical and emotional turmoil. But this satisfaction doesn't come from his immediate circumstances. It comes from the psalmist's intimate knowledge of who God is and what he has done, God's character and God's story. God is satisfied in the past. And one day I can trust that God will satisfy in the future. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want even when it seems like you're far away, God, even then. This is Psalm 22. Let's skip ahead to Psalm 24, also by David. I'll just read the beginning part and the end of 24. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Now, this is a much shorter psalm than 22, It is not, obviously, a psalm of lament, right? Nor is it a personal testimony like Psalm 23. This is a psalm about God's ultimate triumph, that God, the King of glory, the God who made and owns the whole world, he's coming back. And and in Psalm 23, we see this little picture, this little picture of the shepherd and the sheep. And in Psalm 24, it backs up, and you can see the field, and it backs up, And you can see the continent, and it backs up. And finally, you can see the whole cosmos. And the the speaker says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it because he made it. He founded it upon the seas. And then in the second part, it's about God coming down. It's almost like there should be some trumpets I don't play the trumpet. If I did, I would have brought it today. In verse 7, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up. Open the city gates. This is not a little fence, right? This is a huge gate that you have to crank open. Open the city gates. Open them up. The king of glory is going to come in. And then there's kind of like a password. Who is this king of glory? It asks this twice. The Lord. 
strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's the king of glory. And then it says, open the gates again, right? It's taking a while. They're big and heavy. Open the gates again. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? And then in verse, this is verse 10. This is the climax. It says, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Now, in the Hebrew Bible, Lord of hosts or Lord Almighty in Hebrew really means Lord of the angel armies, king of the angel armies. So this is God with, all, with the whole host of heaven. This is a military host that is coming behind him. Open up the gates. He's coming. The Lord Almighty, the Lord of the angel armies, he's going to come in the gates. Oh, it's so exciting. He is visiting us. That's what we're doing there. Okay, this is a celebration song about the presence of God in our midst. And this comes right after Psalm 23. There's a lament that ends in future praise. There's a poem about how the earth is God's temple and God is coming down to the gates to visit us. It's this transcendent experience, that's Psalm 24, where you recognize the glory of God in the entire cosmos the Lord of the angel armies, the Lord of glory. This God is our shepherd. I have everything I need. I have satisfaction. And we see this contrast between the intimacy of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and the greatness in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And this is why we can have satisfaction, not because everything is perfect, but because the Lord of the angel armies is our shepherd. This is big and this is intimate. This is the shepherd picking up the sheep, putting oil on their wounds, pulling up the poisonous herbs. But this shepherd is also the king of glory, the Lord of the angel armies. And this is why you have everything you need. And even when you don't, Psalm 22 you can know that one day you will. And so even in your lament, you can still praise God. And this is satisfaction, Mick Jagger. So imagine with me how silly it would be if the sheep didn't think that she had everything she needed. I mean, how would it sound if the sheep was also like, I have everything I need, but I also need a Halloween costume because people put costumes on animals. I don't know, a backpack for snacks and some wrinkle cream. I mean, the sheep doesn't need that. I have everything I need. And this isn't just something that we can go around saying to comfort ourselves. The reality of Psalm 23.1 is an invitation to a different kind of life following the Good Shepherd. The reality of Psalm 23.1 isn't just to make us feel good. It's an invitation to a different kind of life following the Good Shepherd. And it looks like something very particular and very peculiar. And so as your pastor of spiritual formation, I have some specific words about this. What does it look like to live a life of satisfaction as we follow the Good Shepherd? Well, through the centuries of the Christian church, Christians have recognized that part of following Jesus, the Good Shepherd, is a life of voluntary simplicity born out of the satisfaction of a relationship with God. The bell choir played the, the prelude this morning and they played the shaker song, "'Tis a gift to be simple, "'tis a gift to be free." 
which if you sung in choir in junior high, you might have sung that at one point. Tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free. And simplicity is a spiritual discipline or a spiritual practice that we can do in participation of the work that God has already done, that we can do in participation in our lives as part of what it looks like to be following Jesus. We don't do spiritual practices to get God to love us more, no. We do spiritual practices as our response to what God has already done. Because becoming holy, as God invites us, isn't something that magically happens. It is, as one of my theology professors says, 100% God and 100% us. You have to train to run a marathon, my friends. We have to train in the way of Jesus. And so, spiritual formation is our entire life, not just our time at church, but it's our entire life, every moment, waking and breathing and sleeping as we live in following Jesus. This is what it means to walk the righteous path that the shepherd leads the sheep on. So I think that our psalm and psalms today can show us some practices that can lead in the path of simplicity. And I have one for each psalm. So first, Psalm 22 reminds us and teaches us to remember the suffering of others. Now, I know many of you in your life or someone you love deeply right now is suffering in some way, emotionally, physically, spiritually. But even beyond the doors of our church throughout the world, there are people who would live a daily existence of suffering probably more than many of us could even imagine. Christians who are persecuted, people who live in work camps, people who have no home. And so, as we remember the suffering of others, those who are saying on a daily basis, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can respond in thanksgiving for our own lives and generosity. And sometimes our generosity, whether it's financial or time or time and prayer, it can help others, lift others out of suffering so that they too can experience the goodness of God through us. And when our focus is outward, when we're remembering the suffering and the needs of others, we are less inclined to focus on our own dissatisfaction. You know what I mean? Remember the suffering of others. Psalm 23 reminds us to practice satisfaction. I was talking about this with Justin this week, and he said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> Give me something practical here. I think one way we can practice satisfaction is to simply pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I need. How does praying this as we walk through life change opportunities we have to buy things that we want? How does it change things that we feel like we need to add to our schedule in order to succeed and be satisfied? How can we say, the Lord is my shepherd, I have everything that I want? What does it look like to live in simplicity from the satisfaction that God has already given us? And finally, Psalm 24 invites us to look up. And I don't mean this metaphorically, I mean this literally. A practice of simplicity is often learning about and being more involved in the natural world that God created. As the psalmist in Psalm 24 looks at the whole world and says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, so too, when we look up 
at the created world that God made, it can help put us in context. Recognizing the vastness and majesty of the grandeur of God. The earth is the Lord's. And we can be satisfied in what the King of glory has done. A story about Psalm 24, briefly. When I was 16, my family moved from northwest Indiana, about 20 miles from here, to rural North Dakota, a town of fewer than 2,000 people. This is a picture of the main street. I was 16. I went from a class of over 500 students to a class of fewer than 25. It was miserable. Uh, God formed me. In my loneliness and grief, one of the consolations I found living there was going out and just looking at the sky, which there isn't lots to look at at North Dakota, but the sky is amazing. And looking at the sky, and I started imagining that this was the canvas of God, that every day God would paint something different, another celebration of color. And I know some days on cloudy days, you think, well, it's really not much. But on those days, imagine how it is when you are in a plane and it's cloudy and you take off and you go through the clouds and you see the blue sky and you see the fluffy clouds. The earth is the Lord's. I am satisfied. And this practice that I didn't read about, I just started recognizing it was a way I experienced the presence of God in one of the darkest times of my life. And so us too, in our dissatisfaction, by celebrating and recognizing the revelation of God through the natural world, we too can say, the earth is the Lord's. The Lord is my shepherd. I am satisfied. This is a different call than what we usually hear. This is not easy. This is countercultural. But God calls his people to be different. This takes courage. This isn't rebellion like the Rolling Stones, but this is countercultural in the way of Jesus, which is going to look very different from the world. And so as we ponder this, I invite us to pray this prayer together. This is by Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, to pray that the Holy Spirit will empower us in the call that Jesus has on our lives. So let's pray together. I'll begin and invite you to read the bold. We are counted your people. We are grateful to be called by you. And glad for our specific way of faith in the world. You have marked us and made us inside us. And we are different. Different memories, different hopes, different fears, different demands, different ways of being. That difference we find glorious but at times a burden too severe. We yearn to be like others, like others in power, in money, in freedom, in servitude, in security. Like the others uncalled, unburdened, unembarrassed. We come to you in that deep trial of difference and likeness. Engage us in our difference. Give us courage. In the name of your crucified Easter one, so unlike the others. Amen. Let us continue into the prayers of the people today. And using this model, 
the suffering of others, practicing satisfaction and looking up. I'll be organizing the prayers and I will provide a space after each one for us to pray for those individuals and people we know who are suffering, to pray for our own satisfaction in being followers of the Good Shepherd, and then finally to praise God for what God has done when we proclaim that the earth is the Lord's and all that are in it. So as I provide space, I'll put my arms out and you can know this is the time where I can pray aloud. Or you may also pray silently, but let us pray together.